please open your Bibles with me to 1 Kings chapter 21. 1 Kings chapter 21. A hardening of the heart is a tragic picture. When someone hardens their heart. When someone gives themselves over to their sin, the hardening effect upon their heart grows more and more. And what increases that rate of a hardness of heart is a delay of repentance. Isaiah 55 verse 6 reminds us to seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And when we fail to call upon him, no matter how deep in sin we are, we either are softened in repentance or continue down the path of a deeper hardening. And that is a tragic picture. When we don't seek deeper into Christ's glory and his mercy, we're seeking deeper into our sin and therefore by deeper hardening. You think about it, how easy is it to pick and to pluck a small weed that has begun to grow in your garden than a full-sized weed that's entrenched with roots into the soil and to the rocks. It's a lot easier to pluck out a, a small baby weed than a full-sized, grown, stubborn weed. It's still possible, but how hard it is. As Thomas Brooks, the Puritan, once said, that delay is the devil's verb. And that's what we do, is tomorrow I can change. It's not that bad. My sin is there, but, you know, I'll deal with it tomorrow. And that delaying is really akin to hardening. Now, of course, God is able to soften the most hardened of hearts, but that doesn't mean that we should not heed the exhortations of Scripture that warn us not to harden our hearts. For in the life of Ahab, this wicked king of Israel, who we began to look at last week, he saw glimpses of God's glory several times, and yet he remained hardened in his sin. And in this passage, chapter 21, we see just about how far he is willing to go. This is toward the end of 1 Kings. However, in early Hebrew manuscripts, 1 Kings and 2 Kings were together one book. And so the, the, the Hebrews saw them together. 1 Kings and 2 Kings is just kings. <laughs> it's just one book together. And it didn't get split until later on when the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, took place. And they separated it. And then the Latin Vulgate followed its course as well. And they basically separated it for just conveniences in the transcribing and the copying. But still, it's in the middle of, of, of kings as a whole. And at this portion of the, at this time, in this portion of the extended time of Ahab's reign, that the author took time to just spend adequate time of just speaking of Ahab and his kingship and his, his reign all throughout Israel. The, the author stopped and just expanded this narrative on this wicked king. And as he did this, the king proves himself, Ahab, to be and to have even less character than was demonstrated previously. And in this chapter, we see that even more. Like his character just spirals down even more and more and more. And now we see it's even at the catalyst of his wicked wife as well. Now, I know we've been covering a lot of real estate in these just two weeks of these two chapters, a lot of verses. But these types of narratives of passages, they need to be seen in larger pictures, larger chunks. We have to go after them in bigger segments so that we can get the full picture of what the author is trying to convey with the story here. So I know it's a lot, but it is helpful so we can see what is he designing to do by covering so much here in this short book here. If, if you, you could split it up, but we could do a six-week series on chapters 21 or 20 to 21. But it's almost like if you're watching a movie or a TV show and then you get all these constant commercial breaks or then at the end of it you get to be continued. Oh, next week, to be continued for a fourth part. It's like it's a little frustrating. Like, come on. <laughs> How many times do I got to wait to be continued? So I think it's best for us to get a big picture here of what's going on and what can we learn, what does God have for us this morning? So 1 Kings 21, it's centered on the triumph of God's inescapable justice. It's centered on the triumph of God's unescapable justice. We've seen from the beginning of chapter 16 to this point now that God rules nature, he rules nations, and he rules kings. That God triumphs. And here in this chapter, we see the triumph of God's unescapable justice. 
and it's seen keenly in the life of Ahab as it comes to an end with him. And this story as it's being told, particularly in this chapter, it's almost told like a game of chess, where you see one action being done, and then the opponent responds. There's another action, and there's a response. It's told like a strategic game of chess, one by one by one, and you see it told by a series of confrontations. As these confrontations happen, something else happens, and the spiral begins to go even deeper and deeper until God intervenes. And it just gets uglier and uglier. In chapter 21, that's just it's like the pinnacle of Ahab's just sin. It's the pinnacle of his wickedness that we see. And so let's just look at it as we work through it as these series of confrontations. This first confrontation you see between a covetous king and a noble man. A covetous king and a noble man. The downward spiral of this chapter, it ensues from the, this initial counter that Ahab has with Naboth, who's a Jezreelite. Jezreelite, got to say that five times. It's Naboth, he's a Jezreelite. And in this passage, it's interesting how the author mentions time and time again, when he's talking about Naboth, who we know already, he's a Jezreelite, but he says it time and time again, Naboth the Jezreelite, Naboth the Jezreelite, Naboth the Jezreelite. And it's almost to remind us of the fact that this Naboth is an Israelite, he is of the people of God, he's a kinsman according to the flesh, and he is one of God's people, as if Ahab should pay particular attention to this man, because he is one of God's people, and even one of his subjects in his land. So it's almost to bring attention to the fact that this Jezreelite is not just some sort of foreigner, not random man, but this is a man in God's kingdom. And so, in this, in this encounter here, this confrontation between this covetous king, Ahab, and this noble man, Naboth, we see here what happens. Naboth, he's likely from the tribe of Issachar, and he has a vineyard right next to Ahab's palace. And then, as you see here, Ahab wants this vineyard. Look at verse 2. Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is close beside my house, and I will give you a better vineyard than it is than its, a better vineyard than it is in its place. And if you like, I will give you the price of it in money. Now, it's not unusual ancient Near Eastern custom for kings to seek other lands and for even people, commoners, to exchange land, to sell their land, to buy other land. It's not uncommon, and especially not uncommon for kings to not only just ask for land, but rather than asking, they'll just inform you, I'm going to take your vineyard. <laughs> but here in this passage, he's not just taking it. He's asking him, you have a decent request here. They say, let me have your land. I'll trade it. I'll give you something better. Hey, I'll even give you money for it. But nevertheless, in this recent, seemingly, you know, reasonable request, Naboth refuses to sell Ahab that vineyard that he wants. And how does Ahab respond? Just knowing Ahab, I don't even think we have to read it. We can already imagine how Ahab might respond when he doesn't get something that he wants. Look at verse 4. So Ahab, after being refused, came into his house Sullen and vexed. Sound familiar? What he did at the end of chapter 20, after God pronounced prophecy against him in verse 43, he went to his house, sullen and vexed. But here again, this pouty king, verse 4, came into his house, sullen and vexed, because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and ate no food. This poor king here. Oh, I can't have this vegetable garden. Oh, I can't have this vineyard. And so now he's just sat in, beat down, and angry. It's really here, he's just throwing a temper tantrum. Like, man, he's not getting what he wants, and look how he responds. I'm just going to go in my room and just play with my own Legos here. This king's sad picture here, just really just par for the course for him. But even his wife finds him despicable. Because notice how she speaks to him in verse 7. After she figures out what's going on with him, Jezebel's wife said to him, Do you now reign over Israel? Like, in other words, she's saying, and the emphatic is the you. She puts it forward in the, in the sentence in the Hebrew. It's like the emphatic on, like, do, do, do you reign? Like, don't you know who you are? You're not Ahab. You are King Ahab. And King Ahab, do you not reign over Israel? She's like, what are you doing sulking in your bed? Who are you? Don't you know who you are? Is that a scepter in your hand? Is that a crown on your head? 
Like, like, what's wrong with you? Do you not reign over Israel? She just looks at him, pathetic. Like, even she finds him to be pathetic. We've got to move to the second confrontation, a covetous king and his wicked wife. Because when she asked him what's wrong with him and why isn't he eating, you go back in verse 6, she tells him, because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, give me your vineyard for money. Or else, if it pleases you, I will give you a vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Stomping his feet there. She tells him, he tells her what's wrong. But there's an important detail to Naboth's refusal that he, he indicates here. As he's describing how Naboth spoke to him, he leaves out an important detail here. Because what was Naboth's actual response back in verse 3 when he asked to sell the vineyard? Look at verse 3. Naboth said to Ahab, Naboth said to Ahab the Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. He meant that quite literally. Like his response wasn't just like, no, I like to sit in there for shade. Like his reason was like, no, the Lord, Yahweh, forbid me to sell you an inheritance of my fathers. He meant that literally. Because in order for him to sell that land, he would be transgressing against his God. In Numbers chapter 36, verse 3 It says that thus no inheritance of the sons of Israel shall be transferred from tribe to tribe. For the sons of Israel shall each hold to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. So you couldn't even sell land to another tribesman who was maybe in another tribe. You had to keep it within the own tribe. But even more, Leviticus 25, 23 says the land, this is Yahweh speaking, moreover, shall not be sold permanently. And why is that? Why can't you sell land? Like, don't you live here? Your name's on the deed? Like, people know it was allotted to you. Like, why can't you sell it? And it follows up after that. For the land is mine. (laughs) Yahweh's saying, don't sell it permanently. Why? It's not your land. It's mine. And he says, for you are but aliens and sojourners with me. So he's saying here, this ain't your land. Even though I have gifted it to you, It's mine, and you are tenants. And so it's not yours to sell because it does not belong to you. And Naboth, this noble man, knows this. And so when Ahab is saying, give me your land, Naboth is saying, no, the Lord forbid me. Yahweh forbid me from doing that. That's in clear contradiction to Scripture, that we are not to sell this land because it's not even mine to sell. It's Yahweh's. And so he's not just stubbornly going against this king. He is appealing to God. That this is his, and I can't sell it. It's not mine. He wasn't disrespecting the king, but Naboth was honoring his God. This is highly commendable to stand up to the king, and knowing Ahab, like he's standing up to Ahab. This is highly commendable of this Naboth to do this. But to no one's surprise, Ahab and Jezebel have no regard for the law of God. And they're willing to take from Yahweh. And in fact, Jezebel boldly tells him in verse 7, hmm, you're you're sulking? I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. That's kind of bold. Sounds like a little bit like sovereignty language here. Like, you're you're sulking? Guess what? I will give you the land, she says. That this wicked woman is telling him, why are you not doing anything? I'll make sure it's done. And then verses 8 through 10, Jezebel then took over. Look at verse 8. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent letters to the elders and to the nobles who were living with Naboth in the city. Now she wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people and seat two worthless men before him and let them testify against him saying, You cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So now she had a plan. Jezebel looks at this pathetic Ahab and says, you're sulking over this land you can't get? I'm going to handle it. And this is what she does. This wicked woman, who's clearly well-versed in Old Testament law, conspired a way to remove Naboth completely from the picture. And that's what she does. So she writes a a letter in in King Ahab's name, and she seals it with this seal as if to know. So everyone who sees that letter, the king only had one seal, and so they know if they see that seal... It's coming from his desk, so it's coming with his authority. And so if you disobey that authority, you are disobeying the king. And the kings at that time, they didn't give their seal to just anybody because they realized the authority that it had. 
But she took this letter, took the seal, wrote letters, put a seal upon it, and sent it out as if he approved it. This is seemingly a well-orchestrated plot. I mean, from Ahab's desk, she says then she proclaims a fast. She says, let's proclaim a fast for everybody. And this fast was not an unusual thing to do for a king. Like, uh, oftentimes, like, for example, Second Chronicles chapter 20 and Jeremiah chapter 36, verse 9, there were fasts that were proclaimed. And when a fast was proclaimed, like, why was it there? Like, why are we doing a fast? Not just to our house, but to the city. That when they knew a fast was being proclaimed from the throne, they realized there's something going on, some heavy sin going on, or some heavy judgment awaiting us, and we must respond with humility, so we're going to fast before God, so that he may relinquish his hand upon us. And so whenever a king announced a fast, they knew something was going on. And so she does that. She proclaims a fast to alert their attention. And the people did so. And the irony is in the fact that normally they would proclaim a fast, a public fast, as though some public crime or a heavy load of guilt rested upon the city. But yet the irony is there was a heavy crime resting upon the city at this point. But it wasn't the one that they were thinking. So then she directed them, as it says, to find two worthless men. Literally, it's, it's translated these worthless men, two sons of Belial. The sons of Belial was obviously known and used other portions of scripture, even in the New Testament when Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15, when he says, what harmony does Christ have with Belial? That then when they knew that you're referring to someone as Belial, it's akin to being referred to as Satan. And so these two worthless men, they're not even named because the author doesn't even seem worthy to name them. These two worthless men, these two just worthless scoundrels, sons of Belial, sons of Satan, willing to conspire in this wicked plot, he says. She gathers two of them to accuse Naboth at a feast. And they're accused, they're called to accuse him of cursing God and the king, it says. And obviously, as you know, if anyone were to curse God, it's the kind of like blasphemy. So to, to commit blasphemy, it's worthy of death. Exodus chapter 22, verse 28 says, you shall not curse God, nor curse a ruler of your people. Because if you curse the ruler of your people, you, you curse the king, you're cursing God who placed him there. And so to commit blasphemy and also blasphemy against the throne is a, a heinous crime against God. And so she's setting up this whole conspiracy to be, have two witnesses, which is appropriate for Old Testament law, set them up against Naboth after a fast. So people already know there's something going wrong. There's some sin in the city here. Judgment is coming. So we don't know exactly what it is yet, but there's been a fast proclaimed by the king. Now let's put Naboth at the head of the table. We need two witnesses, according to Old Testament law, accuse him of a capital crime, and then what? Stone him. So she sets all this up, a citywide fast, two witnesses, and frames Naboth of a capital crime. It's a seemingly airtight plot. I mean, even CSI couldn't crack this one. This is put together. You got witnesses, you got blasphemy, and you can't stand against it. He's guilty. Seemingly airtight plot. But in this third confrontation now, which involves a corrupt city against an innocent man because this plot continues on. The plan goes into action. And if the depravity of Ahab and Jezebel wasn't enough, this passage begins to describe the vast pollution of the moral fabric of the people as well. Because not only is Ahab and Jezebel guilty, but look how the author explains the guilt of even the people. Verse 11. So after she concocts this plan, it says in verse 11, so the men of his city, the elders and the nobles who lived in the city did as Jezebel had sent word to them, just as it was written in the letters which she had sent them. Like this is not just the king who's guilty, but you got men of the city, generally speaking, And not only the men, but the elders, and not only just the elders, but the nobles of the city. Like, this is just not just one secret plot. The higher-ups, the upper echelon, the authority, the rulers in the city, even the noblemen who are supposed to have some sort of moral integrity are involved in this plot to murder someone in cold blood. 
and they're willing to obey this king and defy their God at what cost? So it's not just Ahab and Jezebel, but even now these wicked Israelites, the noblemen, the elders who are supposed to oversee and to make sure God's laws preserved are in on this plan. And they did as she told them to do. And that all of this is against a faithful, God-honoring, law-obeying man, Naboth. So the plan went forward in verse 13. The two worthless men came in before him, and the worst fight against him, even against Naboth, before the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. And so they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. It's a sad story here of a man seeking to honor Yahweh, his God, and ends up being murdered in cold daylight because of his wicked king and his wife and the nobles and the elders and the people of the city willing to do all of this. This is tragic. We don't know all the details of the specific accusation. We know that he's accused of cursing God and man or cursing God and the king. Now, what all that looks like? The text doesn't give us details of how that was accomplished. Whether it was, he gave a vow before God and the king that he would summon the land, and when it came time to sell it, he backed out. So therefore, now he's, he's disobeying God, he's cursing God and the king by not following through with his word. Blasphemy, stone him. Or could it be they're just accusing him of idolatry, that he did commit blasphemy in some sort of context. We don't know all how it happened and what they specifically accused him of, but we do know that they accused him simply of blasphemy, which was worthy of death. And so much so that the people were willing to comply and follow sort with the capital punishment of that. And so according to 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 26, in the second book there, you see that it implies that Naboth's sons were also killed with him in the stoning, which would leave no heir to the land. And another bitter irony is that they were unwilling to follow the laws of idolatry that is so clearly seen in the book of Kings so far. They're unwilling to follow the laws of idolatry. Like in Deuteronomy 13, if someone says, follow another God, what are you supposed to do? Investigate the matter, and then you stone them. They're unwilling to follow the lands or the laws of idolatry, but yet so willing to execute punishment on this crime. Just, just horrific irony here. Like, how twisted is your morality here that you are just selectively obeying God at your own whim and overlooking the most important thing is what are you serving? This morality, the depravity has filtered down to even the people, the elders, the noblemen, and of course, it started at the throne of the king and his wife. As the text says in verse 14, they sent word then to Jezebel that the deed is done. Verse 14, it says, they sent word to her saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. And you notice they sent word to who? Jezebel. But yet, she sent letters in Ahab's name with Ahab's seal. So who did it come from? Ahab, quote unquote. But yet they sent word to whom? Jezebel. It was almost as if they knew who was behind this. And they didn't care. They just had it all on the black and white paperwork that would suffice for court of law from the king. We did this, and they were able to, willing to comply with that. But then they sent word to the real conspirator behind it, Jezebel, although Ahab is not innocent because he knew what she would do. But they sent word back to her that everything that they orchestrated was completed. And then Jezebel, Jezebel notifies her just as guilty husband, And then he goes down and takes possession of this bloodshed vineyard in verse 15. When Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. Again, you see the sovereignty language that she's claiming. Take possession, arise, go and take possession of this, this land. For now he is dead. All of this for a vegetable garden. He was willing to to go so far because of his coveting just so he could have some carrots. It makes no sense, but that's what a hardening of heart will do. That covetousness 
will work its way down and be willing to commit murder. That's why James 4 says, you lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. Like that's what a covetous heart does. It gets what it gets and it's willing to do anything in order to get it. Now again, still at this point, a seemingly airtight plot. They got the witnesses, they have the seal, the people approved it, they got the crime, no one knows, no one's the wiser. A seemingly airtight plot, but they forgot one crucial detail. Yahweh sees all. Yahweh sees all. And no one can escape his justice. And that leads us to the fourth confrontation. A guilty king against a faithful prophet. Because now Elijah comes back into the picture. We haven't seen much of him since Mount Carmel and he ran. We haven't seen much of Elijah. But now he comes back to the picture and God sends him to confront Ahab at the scene of the crime in the vineyard. It's not the only time, as we mentioned last week, the only time, not the only time God has sent a prophet to go against a king. No one's exempt. (laughs) No one's exempt. But look what happens in verse 19. Well, actually, verse 17, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, the king of Israel, who is in Samaria, and behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, and where he has gone down to take possession of it. You shall speak to him, saying, Thus the Lord, thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick up your blood, even yours. Now, I don't know if I should find this humorous or not, but I love how Ahab greets the prophets every time. It's, it's kind of comical in my mind. Like whenever an, a prophet comes in the picture in Ahab's life, it's like he does not like it. Like you remember on Mount Carmel when, when he sees Elijah, you remember what he calls him, what he refers to him as? And when he comes to the picture and Ahab sees Elijah, he's like, oh, Here's the troubler of Israel. He does not like it. Elijah's on scene, and Ahab is upset because he realizes everything that comes from Elijah's mouth is in contradiction to what Ahab wants and to who Ahab is. And he does not like it. He calls him the troubler of Israel in in 1 Kings 18, verse 17. But now, how does Ahab call him now? How does he refer to him now when he sees him again? In verse 20, Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me? Oh, my enemy. Oh, now we've gotten further on. He's no longer just a troubler, but now this man is my enemy. You found me again, oh, enemy. Just indicating just the hardening of Ahab, still not willing to learn and to hear from the mouth of God that he still despises God's word. And he despises God's word because he despises God's prophet. And he calls him an enemy. He still does not like him, still hardening. And you realize, if you think about it, Elijah is far from Ahab's enemy. I mean, his motives were to turn Ahab back from his path of self-destruction as well as the entire nation of Israel. Elijah was far from being an enemy to him, but really a friend a gracious friend. But as usual, now we see Elijah's not afraid to tell Ahab how it is. Because after he says that, look how Elijah responds to him. No, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of Yahweh. You see how he phrases this? Like This is his first words to him. I found you because not you're just doing evil, although it's true, not because you committed evil, although it's true, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil. He's emphasizing Ahab's moral culpability in all of this. Because this is not because Yahweh did not give Ahab plenty of opportunities to repent. Or because he did not have enough revelation to understand that Yahweh is God. And it's not even because he did not see, because he see how, how kind Yahweh was toward him time and time again. But he gave himself over to idolatry, which is even shown in his willingness to marry Jezebel at the beginning. But what he's saying here, you sold yourself over to do evil. 
that who is responsible for this evil that you've done, Ahab? That you gave yourself over to your sin. He sold himself over to a sin, seeking everything it could offer him. And it began at this idolatry that he was willing to commit in the very beginning. That he gave himself to a sin. That he is so willing to bow down to his own God, and whether it be his own God of desiring his own covetous heart, desiring his own possessions, even worshiping Baal, all of these things that he was willing to do and to serve, to bow down and everything else but Yahweh resulted in him at this point where now he's confronted with the very truth. You gave yourself over to do evil. And now time has come. Judgment is here. The knock is at the door and it's coming for you. And this is not because you did not have plenty of opportunities to see who God is. It's not because you have not seen the merciful hand upon God in your life when he spared you from the enemies right before your eyes. And this is not because even though time and time again God showed himself good, you still rejected him. But even in all of this, you still chose to give yourself over to your idol that he sold himself over to evil. So much so that he's willing to even commit murder against an image bearer, Naboth. And just like Jesus later warns in Matthew 16, verse 26, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? In this sad picture of Ahab, a king who was seeking everything in this world all that it can offer, all of just the physical amenities of the world, the, the passions of the flesh, everything in this world that he was willing to get by any means necessary brought him to a point where his sin hardened him, where God says, now justice has come. And he is at that sad point. And by the way, no one wants to be at this point. We're now hardened in sin, even though you know it's wrong, you know who God is, your conscience bothers you, but instead of repenting, you ignore it and you go further into your sin, thinking maybe it will satisfy me more this time, and you get hardened and hardened and hardened, and a time will come if God does not graciously intervene, where he will say, time is up, sinner, judgment has come. No one wants to be in that position. And the fact that God would even reveal this to us is a mercy because we know that this gracious God is a God who will forgive willingly the humble heart who bows the knee before him. But in this account here, you see the exact opposite of a hardened sinner who is not moved by his own guilt, who ignores the engine light on his conscience, and he continues on into a sin, and now we see God opening up the covers. Time is over. Game over. And in the middle of the story now, the narrator, narrator breaks the dialogue and he provides divine insight on Ahab and Jezebel. Because after condem- condemning him, which we'll come, get back to, he says in verse 25, Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. He acted very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the sons of Israel. After he sees Ahab, he says God's judgment upon him in verses 20 through 24. And basically, Elijah tells him, God says, as he's already prophesied, Jezebel, your wicked wife, She's going to be destroyed. The dogs will eat her in the city. And for you, Ahab, for your sin that God has seen, he is going to wipe you out and all of your sons will be wiped out as well. Your name is going to be blotted from history because of your sin. And he says, God is done with you now. This merciful, patient, long-suffering God who even endured 400 years from some wicked nations before taking them out, this sovereign, patient God, he says now, your time is done. And then after that, the narrator says, man, it's like the narrator coming in the, the movie, stopping the dialogue. 
There was no one wicked like him. No one who provoked God to anger time and time again. Ahab's sin was unparalleled. And sadly, a reflection on Israel. As one person said this way, that Ahab was the vilest of all the Israelite kings. Completely under the domination of his wicked pagan wife, he was unmatched in evil and spiritual harlotry in Israel. Someone else said that he might have been a different king if he had not initially disobeyed the Lord in marrying a foreign wife, Jezebel. And in this account as well, when Jezebel's mentioned think, think, three times, Jezebel, his wife, Jezebel, his wife, Jezebel, his wife. You get the picture here? Jezebel shouldn't have been his wife. And look what she did, even led him to commit murder. He even compares Ahab to the Amorites, the very ones who were cast from their land because of the gross sin in spite of the Lord's long-suffering with them. And he's compared, he says, he did like that of the Amorites, the very nation I wiped out because of their sin. But how much more accountable is Ahab because he not only followed in worshiping idols, but he even regulated the worship. And this picture of Ahab here is in direct contradiction to what the king of God's land should be like. Because remember, it's God's land, it's not theirs, and what should the king who God places in that land should look like? How should that king behave? Deuteronomy 17 gives a clear picture of when he gives you a king, how should he behave? Deuteronomy 17, verse 14, it says, When you enter the land which the Lord God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you shall say, I will set a king over me like the nations who are around me, then verse 15, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from whom your countrymen you shall set as king over, your, over yourselves, and you may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. And then moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to, to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. So not only should he not multiply horses, verse 17, he shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. Nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now look here at verse 18. Now it shall come about, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law. On a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear Yahweh his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. You see, what should this king be like? He shall have the law in front of him. In the presence of Levitical priests, there's accountability here. That it's not just his law, whatever he wants to choose. In the presence of these priests, you shall read that law, and you shall be upon your heart so you follow it. And so that you don't exalt yourself over your own countrymen like Naboth and willing to take his life and his land. That's what a king should look like. And Ahab is the direct opposite of that disregarding the law of God, bowing down to Baal, and worshiping his own way, his own life, because he has an issue of idolatry. He's in direct contradiction of what God's king should look like. And the reason we remove ourselves from the danger of stories like these that we're looking at is because we fail to see the prevalence of idolatry and its self-destructing consequences. I think it's easier for us to read this 1,500 years removed and we're like, yes, it's bad. 2,000 years removed. It's bad. But you know what? He was bad. And we fail to see the self-destructing consequences of really what's being done here. Because Ahab's sin in coveting led to murder. And you think about it, like all these kings... He's mentioning he set up Baals, he set up the Astra, he set up all these things in the high places. Like, what is so appealing about Baal? Like, what's so appealing? Have you seen statues of these? Like, these things look ugly. Like, that's the best you can do? 
Is that the best artist in the kingdom? Like, what's so appealing about Baal? That all of these kings, universally almost, would bow down to Baal. The issue is not just about an idol, a statue, but look what they got with it. With Baal, they got all of the lust of their flesh that they wanted. Like, we're in mixed company here, so we won't talk about the cultic practices in the temple they would do with prostitutes, both male and female, but how it appealed to their flesh, what they, what they looked to these idols to do to, to guide them and to guard them and to give them all sorts of things in nature like rain and sunshine. The appeal of Baal and idolatry was all fixed upon turning away from the invisible true God and turning to things that you can see and touch and get comfort in and also get pleasure in. That my flesh is satisfied. This feels good. This I can see, I can hold on to, I can control it, and it does not control me. That I have a license to go after whatever my heart wants. That the desires of my flesh reign in Baal. And so, of course, I will gladly bow down to it because it gives me what I want. It appeals to my flesh. It appeals to my desires. It appeals to my taste, and I love it. So it's not just about a random statue. It's the issue of idolatry reigning even today where we just want what our flesh wants. And I want to trust in what I can see, what I can hold, what I can control, what will give me esteem, what will give me credit, what will give me self-reward, what will give me pleasure, all of these things. We want to go after that aside from what God is and what he offers. So before we cast stones, beware. Our flesh so desperately wants to worship what we can see. We take hope, we get pleasure, we give all ourselves to that which we think we can grasp, hold, and control. Because idolatry, as you see with Ahab, he not only turned his heart away from Yahweh, but really his heart was turned toward the world. He loved what he could see, what he can control. He loved vegetables. He loved vegetables so much that it controlled what he did. Like that, 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 That's what motivated him, his desires. That's what it does. It really deceives us to think that this may be give me joy. If I live outside of God's design, I possibly can get fulfillment there. We never expect it to do what it will ultimately seek to do. And every time when you pursue idolatry, when you pursue your own way, when you turn from God's way, what will happen if you do not repent is it will ultimately steal, kill, and destroy. Whether it's today or whether it's in the future. God is in control of that time clock. But don't provoke him in his anger because it very well could be today. This is a deepened level of hardening that drove Ahab to the place here where he sold himself to evil. He gave himself to his sin. The most loving thing I can do this morning is possibly, maybe if there is anyone in this room who is clinging to their own flesh, clinging to their own desires, clinging to your own idol, call it what you want. I don't know what it is, whether it's a bottle, whether it's a woman, whether it's a man, whether it's a thing, I don't know what it is. If you are clinging to your own idol, the most loving thing I can do right now is to exhort you to turn and turn to Christ. Like this is serious, not because I think it's serious, but look how God responds to this. Ephesians 5 says that you know that Paul warns no fornicator, no unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And we have to hear, by consequence, the proper response for sin is God's justice. And the only way to flee God's justice, because it's not only going to be on earth, but God's justice in eternity, in hell, under his wrath forever, the only way to find refuge from that justice is by turning to his grace that's found in his son Christ. And if that's you this morning, take heart. 
that this is a grace and a mercy that God gifted you the ability to hear this this morning so you have one more opportunity to run from your idol and to flee to Christ to find refuge this very morning. Run to him. But the proper consequence we see for Ahab's life is his judgment. Verse 21, I will bring evil upon you and will utterly sweep you away and will cut off from Ahab every male, both bond and free in Israel. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, who was the first wicked king of Israel, the son of Nabat, and like the house of Bashar, the son of Ahijah. And because the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and because you have made Israel sin. Of Jezebel also the Lord spoke in saying the dogs will eat Jezebel in the district of Jezreel. The one belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And the one who dies in the field, the birds of heaven will eat. This very judgment was ultimately fulfilled, 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 25 and 26, with Joram, his son. That he was wiped out by God's decree in fulfillment of this very prophecy before us. The fifth confrontation now leads us to the fifth confrontation. A guilty king against a good God. A guilty king against a good God. Because here is an unrespected response from the hardened heart of Ahab. Because now he sees this cold-blooded prophecy right before him. He sees it, and how does he respond? Because what we know of Ahab thus far, if we do some character development on him, does he care much about God's word? No. But look how he responds in verse 27 once he hears this. It came about when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and fasted and he lay in sackcloth and went about despondently. Wow, this is a different response. Because before when he's given a prophecy of his judgment, even the the previous chapter, he just went sullen and mad, sullen and vexed. He was angry and just down. But now here, it's a different response. He tore his clothes, put on that material, that garment of repentance, sackcloth, and he fasted. Whoa. And then he lay, he lay in sackcloth, and he went about despondently. In other words, just walking just softly, just realizing just all the guilt, the judgment. This is an unrespected response from Ahab. Ahab is finally humbled. Finally. He puts on the garment. He goes about walking softly. And from all the other encounters, he remained unmoved and hardened against Yahweh so far. From when he saw fire fall down, when he saw God relieve him from this wicked nation with all the chariots and horses and kings coming against him. He saw God miraculously save him, not once, but twice. He was still unmoved. But now at this point, when God knocks on his door, he's finally humbled. He's defeated and humbled before Yahweh. That is surprising. But what's even more surprising is how God responds to this. So then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Elijah, you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but I will bring the evil upon his house in his son's days. Now that is even more surprising because God's judgment doesn't change. He's still going to be wiped out, but he's not going to see the wrath of that judgment in his days. Instead, his sons will see it. And by the way, his sons, also wicked. And so they saw it and they deserved it because they were also wicked. But hey, Ahab should have been wiped out, but he didn't. But all of this is according to God's own time clock, according to his own patience, according to his own mercy. And so the judgment didn't change, but the timing of it changed because of Ahab's response, that God responded to the humility of Ahab. Now, it's truly unfathomable why God would extend mercy at this point. I mean, just think about this Ahab, what he's done here. Like committed cold-blooded murder, idolatry, not only himself, but leading an entire nation in idolatry against Yahweh. Think of all that Ahab has done, and yet God would extend mercy at this point. Like why? 
It's unfathomable. By all human standards, by even the most reasonable depraved mind, I mean, he has gone too far. Like, he has gone way too far. He has reached the pinnacle of injustice, and yet Yahweh spares his life for just a few more years. Why? Why? Because he humbled himself, but hey, Ahab didn't repent. This is not repentance, but you see a humbling here. And how do we know he didn't repent? In the next chapter here, in the next chapter, chapter 22, if you look at verse 8, when another prophet is going to come into the picture, how does he respond to this other prophet? The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire in the Lord. Sorry, uh, he says, uh, the, the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord. But what does he say about him? But I hate him because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. So even there, they're going to go into war again. And he says, okay, were any prophets of Yahweh in the picture here? And Ahab is like, well, okay, there, I, all right, there's one, but I hate him because he never tells me good things. Like he has no softened heart towards the word of God or his prophets. He hasn't repented in this account. He's still hardened, but he at least humbled himself before this God. And that was enough for God to turn his judgment away for just a few more years. But he was humbled before him. But why was Yahweh so patient toward this cruel king? As I mentioned in the beginning, 1 Kings 21 is centered on the triumph of God's unescapable justice. And we might add the triumph also of his undeserved mercy. The triumph of his unescapable justice, Yahweh wins every single time. Justice prevails. But you also see in this account the triumph of his patience shown in his mercy. That this undeserved, <clears throat> excuse me, undeserved mercy toward this sinner, this wicked king, is displayed right before our eyes. And what a sharp lesson it is that one can be humbled by God's justice and yet still not bow the knee in order to receive forgiveness. That you see this willingness to humble himself, but he still does not turn to Yahweh in faith. It's almost like the picture of Mark 10 with the rich young ruler. He goes to Jesus, Lord, or a master, rabbi, rabbi, teacher, right? Yes, I have respect for you. You know what you're talking about. What can I do to earn eternal life, teacher, rabbi? And the Lord tells him, well, this, this, you know, these commandments. I've done all those things. And it says there that Jesus looked upon this man and having a love for him, says, this is what you must do. He gets to the idol in this young man's heart. You got to let go of that idol. The Lord tells him that in love. And what does this man do? He's certainly humbled. That's not what he wanted to hear. He doesn't respond to Jesus. He just walks away despondently. He walks away saddened because he's not willing to give up what he loves most. It is very possible to be humbled by God's mercy in your life, to be humbled by the fact that God has been long-suffering with you, and to be humbled by his mercy and still not bow the knee to his sovereignty to find grace. And Ahab was humbled, but still did not come to saving faith. And why is Yahweh merciful toward him, giving him at least three more years of life And yet Ahab still does not bow the knee. What a sharp lesson for us it is. Because so will be many who are humbled from time and time and yet never come to the full knowledge of the truth. That many will see God's glory on display in their life as they receive his common grace of giving life. Oh, I was at the point of death and God saved me. Oh, good. God did all of this. I saw God's miracles. And yet, they never bowed the knee to Christ. They never gave gave him their life. And that will be many who are humbled time and time again and yet never come to saving faith. So why would Yahweh choose to show mercy on the most wicked of kings? I mean, it seems more reasonable to show kindness to maybe some of the lesser wicked kings. Or how about maybe intervening sooner before the murder of Naboth? 
like Lord, sovereign Lord of justice, like maybe just maybe stop him before they commit the murder and then indict him. That's just as bad, right? But he allows this righteous man to die. As if to say, sometimes the righteous don't win on this side of glory. But justice still prevails. And trusting in God's timing in his way. And if he chooses to show mercy by being patient toward a stubborn, hard-hearted, wicked sinner, that's his business. God's mercy is God's business. And whatever he does is according to his own will. The Yahweh is showing patience to even the most wicked, wicked ruler is mind-boggling to us. Like, why would he show patience in withholding his justice, giving him years more of life, all for Ahab to spoil it? And we can say Ahab lived his best life then. God was so gracious, so merciful, because he lived his best life then. And God could have cut it short even then, three years earlier, but he didn't. He allowed him life three more years only for Ahab to still cling to what he loved most, his own idols. But God is so merciful, so gracious, and being patient in exacting his justice toward a well-deserved sinner. And yet he gave him patience. That God's justice, his unescapable justice, triumphs in this story and also his undeserved mercy. I do not understand it. Why didn't he enact swift justice sooner? I don't know. You don't know. We won't know until eternity. But we do know that God enacted patience. It's almost the picture of Romans chapter 9 verse 22 when Paul is talking about God's electing grace. And then he gives an illustration here. He says, what if... God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Why does he do that? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. What if God wanting to make known the glorious wealth of his mercy toward us in Christ, and what if he wants to display that glory by placing it against the backdrop of just wicked wrath of sin that he will judge? And the only way for us to appreciate and to revel in the glorious grace of Christ that he gives to whomever he gives, the way we appreciate it is by seeing it against the backdrop of the wrath and justice that he will pour out upon those who deserve it. So don't you dare come to this text and say, well, why didn't God soften Ahab's heart? Did Ahab sell himself to a sin? Yes. Did Ahab choose his sin? Yes. Did Ahab bow down to his idols? Yes. Is God... Is God to be blamed because of his judgment? No. We see how clearly Ahab saw the magnificent glory of God and still chose his own sin. And God is just saying, time is up, justice is here. We can't blame God. You see very clearly the moral culpability of this reprobate. He saw God's glory. He saw the offer for repentance and refused it because he loved what he loved. And in this account here, there is no way God is held accountable for his actions. But God is rightly responding to the sin that he sold himself to. And he's saying justice has come. We can't unravel the majesty of God and his divine workings with man. But we do know this, that yes, God can extend mercy whenever he wants to extend mercy. But also he will extend judgment when he extends judgment. And each and every time, it's according to his own will. It's in their dark and twisted plans that we see the patience of God toward the wicked. So that the riches of his mercy toward his children are put on display. That God is enduring much patience with King Ahab. Much patience. And while this account serves as a lesson for Israel, who, by the way, when they're reading this, currently not in the land, because remember, they're in exile. It's also a sobering reminder 
of God's encouragement for them. Because as I mentioned at the beginning, that the book of 1 Kings and 2 Kings are one book. And if you notice, at the end of 2 Kings, the end of this one book is the glimmer of hope for God's people. At the end of 2 Kings, they're in exile now, both the northern tribe Israel and Judah by this time. They're both sent to exile, the author says. But at the end of Kings, there is a glimmer of hope here. Now, it came about, verse 27, came about in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he became king, released Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and set his throne above the throne of the kings who were with him in Babylon. Jehoiakim changed his prison clothes and had meals in the king's presence regularly all the days of his life. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king, a portion for each day all the days of his life. And so in this account here, which showing just the vile, wicked nature of the king after king, while having some, a couple good kings, but mostly all wicked kings, especially in Israel, at the end of this account, now both exiled There's kindness shown toward the king of Judah. For what reason? I don't know. There's no reason shown. Because he doesn't deserve it because Jehoiakim was just as wicked as well, submitting to idols. And yet he's shown kindness by a pagan king in Babylon. That he's brought out of prison, even amongst other kings, and he's given new clothes. He's given meals. He's given favor. And at this, reading this whole account of Israel and Judah, you see a glimmer of hope and encouragement for God's people saying, here God is even preserving his own. That he's giving favor to an unworthy king of Judah at this point here. And why? Because God is in control of the nations. He's in control of nature, and he's even in control of kings. And God is showing mercy even toward this king of Judah. And what will come eventually out of king of Judah? The lion of Judah. That God is preserving this unworthy king for the sake of his name. That out of this tribe of Judah, Christ will come. This Messiah will come. And this Messiah, when he reigns, when he returns, he will rule justly and he will rule with a rod of iron he will be the king that none of these kings amounted to he will live by his word and his law because it is good he will always judge justly and it points them to remember that this sovereign god preserved them even though unworthy he preserved them protected them and ended this heinous account with a glimmer of hope that Judah is preserved here. He's given favor for some unspeakable reason that we don't even know, and yet he's given favor. And from that preservation, we see ultimately to come the line of Judah who will reign and rule justly. They see this. There's hope given even in this. The last thing I want to leave us with for us as we just contemplate this believer, we don't need to be fearful of condemnation Because even as believers, we still struggle with idolatry. And if you don't realize that, you're in deceit. You're in deception. Like we all believers, we're struggling with idolatry to some form. But we don't need to read this and fear God's condemnation or judgment. But believer in Christ, the the reason why we don't fear that is because we know Christ bore the judgment of God in our place. That we don't fear God's condemnation. But I do think that stories like these should serve as a reminder of us of just the foolishness of idolatry. Like how foolish it is to fall into that which we think will give us satisfaction time and time again. How foolish it is for us to be deceived into thinking this will give me what I'm looking for. And that's a, a, a sober warning for us. To realize, yes, God's judgment does not await me because when I see him face to face, he will look upon me and say, not guilty because Christ paid it all. And so in our life now, we see this account and we realize just how foolish it is to succumb to idolatry and how much God hates it. But to realize, what will it get us? Nothing. So we should be reminded of God's justice 
that he will always do right according to his time clock at the right time, every time. And we also know he is a God full of mercy that we just don't understand. But praise him for this mercy. Praise him for the mercy that can be found solely in Christ. That this saving mercy is extended because of the work of his son. And we rejoice in that. That this great God who rules and reigns is satisfied in no other work but the work of his son on Calvary. And that cross, he he got down from the cross, he was buried and was raised again. And it's coming back again. And he will be the righteous king who will rule justly. And his justice will triumph because it always does. Father, we thank you for your word. And God, we need your word. And I pray, God, that we would not only be reminded of your truth, but be changed by it according to your own way. And so, Lord, we lift up to you this word. We lift up to you all that you are. And God, we just all we can ask is for you to make this a story that we just don't know, but a story that has changed us as we've seen more of your justice and more of your mercy. So thank you for that. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.